Welcome to the Decentralized Web. We cover the latest in decentralized and centralized web technologies through interviews with experts across technology and industry. We're your hosts, Jonathan and Justin. Thanks for joining us as we take a deep dive into what makes data decentralization and consent-based data sharing exciting, interesting, and fun. Welcome, everybody. Today's guest for the Decentralized Web Podcast is Mr. Eric Prudimo, data architect at Gennaro Digital, longtime member of the W3C staff at MIT, self-described data sanitation engineer, and generally good guy. And just as a disclaimer, Eric and I do work together We've worked together pretty closely now for, for a few years. And so we're going to be able to talk a little bit about some of the shared work experiences that, that we've had in this domain. With that said, Eric, thanks for taking the time to speak to us, to join the podcast. First of all, Eric, I think for the sake of, of everyone, you've really had kind of a long storied history in tech, especially in decentralization. So in the oft maligned words of Coldplay, let's go back to the start. So tell us a little bit about you know, how you got started you know, in the industry, where you started. You know, you, you've been involved with W3C since the early days. How did that happen? All right. So I'll go wing way back. My first web job was putting an adult website online in uh, New York. And then my next uh, web job was implementing a content selection system for W3C called PIX, Platform Independent Content Selection. So there's some synergy there. How is the first time that I'm hearing that your first foray into the web was an adult website? Why did I have to bring you on a podcast to find that out? <laughs> Gotta ask the right questions, man. <laughs> well, we've we we give the people what they want at the decentralized web podcast. No, nope, that's, that's what drives technology. Start uh, so when I worked for W3C, I was working on the picks for um for that project. And then I started working on the systems team at the same time that XML and RDF were both coming through standardization process. And can you just Explain to people what the W3C actually is. So the W3C is occasionally maligned as being called the uh, HTML consortium. Uh, it's the standards body that standardized initial HTML and XML, RDF, and CSS, and a whole bunch of different technologies that make the web click. Its success is measured by when you sit down at a browser and you connect to a website and the browser and the website does not tell you this uh, website is best viewed with this particular browser. How did you actually end up at the W3C? I was working on an adult website. An adult website. <laughs> no, not this one. Uh, this was, I was working on uh, LibWWW, which was the 
it started out with Tim's code and then Henrik Nielsen took it over. And it was a, uh, effectively, it was just the library code to make up to, for browsers and servers. And I was, for some reason, I was porting it to Windows. Uh, and then I started working with the Henrik Nielsen and eventually he said, uh, well, that's good, but have you got any paid work? And so he gave me a job doing the PIX work. And then after that, I just started working on the systems team and uh, never I never managed to leave again. It was one of those you know, three-month contracts that went on for 30 years. So that, that LibWW was literally uh, client browser code used by some early browsers to essentially access the web, correct? Yeah, like I would periodically at the time I would use uh, like Netscape and I would see like it took too long when it like everything froze up when you were waiting to resolve a host. Like, oh yeah, I got to fix that bug in LibWW. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you started to mention before I rudely cut you off in your intro about the early advent of RDF and XML, which when we now today are working on the decentralized web, linked data, decentralized data is a key part of it. And whether you're talking about solid pods or verifiable credentials, you're, we're ultimately using this RDF, this linked data model, and you pretty much were there at the, at the inception. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. So the inception actually goes back before me. Uh, I think probably RV Guha, person who most drove it with some work that he did at Apple and then later took to Netscape. And it was basically he was doing directed labeled graphs before uh, before directed labeled graphs were popular. He was you know old school man. And then he and some others and Tim Bray and some folks started the RDF working group at W3C. And I was sort of nearby at the time I was working in the systems team. And so I was I was not involved in the development of RDF. I just started you know, writing parsers and stuff like that for it because I wanted to use it for internal system stuff like the access control system, which still has residuals in solid. So in that um, kind of early initiative for linked data and RDF, there was an article that Tim wrote in Scientific American you know, about the semantic web and, you know, I think directly related to what was happening uh, in RDF. And it, it really, I, I know that there was a vision for a long time that that uh, Tim, when we say Tim, we're talking about Tim Berners-Lee, who is the uh, head of W3C, uh, but also inventor of uh, of the web. And, um, yeah, I think there, there was always this vision that RDF and linked data would allow information to be decentralized, uh, and ultimately, you know, controlled by people so they could use it, you know, put it to work on their behalf, but it's taken a while to get there and maybe a good way to, to start. Could you explain what, RDF is what linked data is and kind of for the, the layman's. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think one of the ways to describe what RDF is is to contrast it against what it isn't, which is to say it's uh, XML 
it's just the data structure that allows you to say, I've got these things inside of these things and, you know, elements and attributes. And then you have to go and layer on top of that in your own idiom, the notions of what you would, if you're an HTML head, you would call hrefs and uh, IDs or names. And so it doesn't have any links in it itself. It just has containership. The whole point of RDF is that it's a, a simpler data model. So it's just subject relationship object assertions. Uh, and it's also a, it, it has these relationships. It doesn't matter how you wrote them down. So in XML, if you wanted to capture Alice knows Bob, there are 50 million ways you might capture that. And if you just had a list of people, Alice's and Bob's and Claire's, et cetera, and then you had another list somewhere in that same document that said, you know, who knows whom, you, any application that's working with that is going to have to say, okay, how did they, not only is there this conceptual link, but how did they write it down? And in RDF, when you're saying, well, there's this conceptual link, that already tells you how to write it down. And so you don't, uh, you don't have to concern yourself with such trivialities of, of what are links, what the links look like. And that simplification makes it so you've got a whole lot less architecture and convention you have to carry between applications and standardize and you know agreements you have to make between people. So in essence, in the simplest sense, it allows us to talk about things and the relationships with with other things. And that could really be any kind of description. Like Eric is a person. Eric developed adult websites. These would be legitimate statements in, in RDF. Yep. I might even be serving an adult website right now. Who knows? <laughs> people, people like these podcasts. So right from, I think, the, the earlier days, one of the initial places where RDF saw its most pervasive use um, was and continues to be in, in search engines. Is that fair to say? Um, it, no, I don't, I don't think it really shows up so much in search engines uh, initially. Like AltaVista, when AltaVista started out, they didn't really care about RDF. When Google started out, they didn't care about RDF. When Google started their mission, the first thing that happened was people started trying to game the system. In fact, even this back, goes back to AltaVista and Yahoo days. People are tr trying to game the system by putting a million uh, link, uh, no, what are they called? Uh, I forget the, the relationship you could throw in your header to say, uh, this page is about X, Y, and Z. And so that meant that there was an enormous amount of abuse. And so Google sort of learned the lesson of don't trust what anybody says on their page. And I thought that was sort of the wrong lesson to learn. What the le lesson they should have learned is trust people, uh, trust what people say about their page and trust, trust, trust people's own metadata in proportion to their, their link value. I forget what that's called. The, uh, the, the metric that they use for the, uh, how, how highly linked the page is. Hmm. But then they started adding RDF to it. But that was probably like 10 years later, honestly. It hmm. took a long time for them to start saying, okay, now we're going to give some SEO opportunity to say you're going to get described more data. But today... It is used inline insights to really help drive the richness of search results and and the content. So it's I look at RDF and linked data as something that actually people are interfacing with pretty much every day. They don't they may not realize it, but it's driving the quality 
of the information that they get back pretty much every uh, kind of search interaction that they have with the web and 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 beyond that. Yeah, it, I mean, Google certainly did 100% about face or 180 degree about face there because uh, they didn't trust people to self-describe and now they do. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of their value and a lot of people's value extracted from their interface comes from the fact that people can reliably write down structured data about themselves and harvesting that is a really useful way to bring value to uh, to search results. Mm-hmm. So I I, I want to get into the work that you've done in healthcare and some of the work that we've collaborated on uh, together. But I think just one more point about linked data and why we care about it when we talk about decentralizing the web. Why does it matter? Why are we talking about this for the first 15 minutes or so of a decentralized web podcast? I think one of the a couple of more a couple of more of the components that make RDF useful or make it RDF interesting, um, make it so that you can really scale out knowledge representation to uh, to a large consumer, a large a large base of producers and consumers that don't have you know 100 overlap in terms of their interests and their expertise. The ability to take two RDF documents and combine them. Like you can't do that with other documents. I can't say, well, what does it mean when I add this XML document to this other XML document uh, or JSON? But with RDF, it's perfectly defined to say, when you add this to this, here is how it interacts. And part of that comes from the fact that you understand the linkages. And part of it comes comes from the fact that when you write down the rules for RDF, you say, okay, you're not allowed to have data that if you only understand part of it, it gives you a misimpression. So you can't say that there is a property that says the store hours are you know, nine to five. And then, you know, two years later say, oh, I'm going to add another property that says except Saturday and Sunday. You don't get to do that. You have to say, if you're going to say that, you have to do that from the start so that anybody who reads the documentation for store hours also knows to look for the except Saturday and Sunday. And that's how you get an environment where you can have a wide class of people who are producing data, another class of people who are consuming data, and they don't have to totally agree on what inferences and what a subset of the data they have to understand versus may understand. So in essence, it it gives us this ability, us, the, the kind of broad us as people who develop technology, people who use technology, a base from which to have data that can be interoperable between disparate applications, between disparate systems, kind of gives us ways to describe things so that machines can interpret it and do useful things. And they can interpret the portion of it that they understand. Because otherwise you have to you have to break the document up into discrete chunks that every producer knows and every consumer understands the entirety of it. And that doesn't really scale. What we needed to do is be able to say, here's a publication pragma that allows people to consume the portions of the data that they understand. And that allows for much more opportunistic reuse of data. So this week, the UK government's Department of Health and Social Care released a draft policy called Data Saves Lives, Reshaping Health and Social Care with Data. And this was signed by the the Secretary of State for Health and Care of the UK. So this is uh, a 
a, a pretty serious strategy and, and policy proposal. And it focused on how the UK's NHS and social care system can make better use of data and technology to put patients at the center of their own care. So this means that they want patients to have access and control over their own information, their own data for the very first time, essentially by creating interoperability across these disparate legacy systems that are used kind of across the spectrum and making this data accessible and in control by the subject of it, the the patient. And it's really at the heart of the mission of decentralization. You know, take it out of the silos, give it to the people. We directly have worked on this together and in this space in healthcare. And I want to get into a bit about your background in healthcare and life sciences, in standardization. We'll talk a little bit about our work and, and especially, but before we do, what's your take on, on this strategy? Like, how do you feel when you see a, a strategy like this come out that essentially is saying, we need to pull this off a lot of the things that you've been working on for the better portion of your career, because ultimately to do this, it's going to require a lot of the standards and technologies that, that you've pioneered. Well, it's kind of gratifying because it means a lot of time that I spent doing something on spec wasn't wasted. It's always nice to feel like your nights and weekends, uh, as well as your regular nine to five days, went to something, your passions went to something of value. So it's, that's super gratifying. And it also, like, I don't think it was particularly innovative of me to think, hey, we know we need to use Semantic Web for this, because in fact, it wasn't me that initially started that. It was John Wilbanks who figured that, that out. But uh, it was just sort of a, uh, a driving need to play with things and, you know, sort of test things and find out what of the infrastructure we had was sufficient for the purposes we wanted to to uh, fulfill and what needed to be added to it. So basically I used it while I was at W3, I used it as uh, I used the healthcare and life sciences space to say, what problems can we solve, but what technology do we need in order to solve those? And that led to a lot of working groups at W3 to sort of provide semantic web infrastructure. So tell us a little bit, a little bit about that. What standards work were you participating in that now is becoming directly relevant to solve some of these problems like we see in the data strategy. You mentioned the W3C's healthcare and life sciences group. And I know that that's, that's something that didn't start yesterday, actually. That's, you, you were involved in that um, some years ago. And uh, a lot of the work, either directly or indirectly, continues on. So tell us a little bit about you know how did that uh, how was that established? What was the focus, and how does that kind of uh, bring us to where we're at today? So around the same time that RDF was sort of being rebranded to be linked data because it gave a better picture to people, painted a better picture to people. At that same time, W3C was sort of casting about for uh, how do we develop technology based on this that will not only help us understand 
the semantic web or RDF, but also um, help us understand the things that we need to add to it. So for instance, when W3 was doing XML, they started doing MathML in order to sort of test out their understanding of what XML needed and develop use cases for XML and basically sort of develop it in concert. Uh, likewise, John Wilbanks said, well, what we need for to test out RDF is we need an environment that has a complex set of linkages. So for instance, a social network isn't a very interesting set of linkages to capture in something like RDF because you could just as easily catch, capture it as a list of pairs, like A knows B. It's not that exciting because all the, all the predicates are, are nodes. But something like biology, uh, you know, if you're looking at a proteomics uh, page that, you know, a diagram that shows all the interrelationships between the things that are reacting during, you know, for instance, meta your metabolism of something as simple as sugar, there's just an enormous amount of stuff that's going on there. And so what you get out of that is you end up with a need, to, if you want to write that down in a machine-readable machine representation, you have a need to capture a vast set of relationships and basically be, be able to rapidly dis invent data structures and deploy data in those data structures and have people be able to read it. So he said, well, what better space than the healthcare and life sciences space? And so that, yes, that was how we started modeling a lot. We started doing a lot of work on cancers. We started doing work on sort of more pedestrian things like library science, because it turns out that if you want to actually try and innovate, you have to not only understand the biology, but understand the publications in which all the biology is published. And so that led to the development of the life sciences part of the healthcare and life sciences group. And then that in turn led to the need for an RDF query language. And so basically that led to the development of Sparkle. Later on, we needed to, I, I, I said, okay, we've been focusing in healthcare and life sciences group, we've been focusing on the life sciences for a very long time. We need to really push on the healthcare side. And so I started working with Josh Mandel and other people to really start developing healthcare infrastructure. And one of the things that came out of that was that Josh Mandel was working on, he was working at HL7 on FIRE. And so we started developing the RDF representation of FIRE. So at that time, FIRE was available in XML and JSON. And now, you know, then after, after we worked on it, it was available in that plus RDF. So to dive in a bit on FIRE, I think certainly anybody who's listening to this who has a background in healthcare at this point has an understanding of it. And we're not talking about the FIRE that burns you when you touch it, but we're talking about FIRE, F-H-I-R, and in essence, it's a interoperable you know, standard for healthcare data and every health system pretty much everywhere has FIRE, FIRE compatibility, FIRE support somewhere in their, in their roadmap or they've already deployed it. When you store data on your phone with Apple Health, it's fire conformant. It is a standard that is taking off or has already taken off. And it, it, it's essential to the future of, of healthcare and healthcare interoperability. And I like to put in that context because I think it's really interesting because you're able to talk about 
kind of the early days and how it's evolved, you know, from that point. But it's a key part of this journey uh, and a key part of fulfilling, like, say, the UK's data strategy. Yeah, and I think it's not the first pass we made at it. Like, the first pass that I did within the Healthcare and Life Sciences group was the RDFification of uh, CCDA, Consolidated Clinical Data Architecture, a clinical document architecture. And that was basically a, you know, kind of like a wallet. It's what stuff do you want to know about a patient who shows up in your emergency department? And... Well, it's bigger, it's fatter than a wallet because it also, you know, had a certain amount of what do you want to know about this person when they show up and when they get transferred uh, from one department at the, at your, when they get transferred from the emergency department to uh, orthopedics or something like that. But it was, you know, I started working with Lloyd McKenzie at, our, at HL7 to, where he was developing the OWL representation of the underlying data model for CCPA which had a conceptual model. It was written down in, in XML, but it was all based on a conceptual model that Lloyd turned into OWL. He captured the whole thing, or captured most of it in OWL, which meant that I could take a CCDA document, which was at the time the standard. That was the thing that, uh, that the um, Affordable Care Act was saying, well, this is probably our best bet for getting uh, secondary use out of data. It was, so basically I was able to take that and say, well, I know you handed me an XML document, but actually because of this work that, that Lloyd McKenzie did, I can tell you what that looks in RDF, looks like in RDF. And so that was one of those opportunities to get something done that involved absolutely no creativity, which is always a goal when you're working in standards. At the time, the HL7 was talking about how, you know, that the RIM, reference inf implementation model, a reference information model rather, was really capturing the semantics of the clinical acts, what was going on in, in, in the clinical data. And that, but you know, basically they weren't getting a ton of uptake. The HL7v2, which was not at all semantic, had gotten a ton of uptake. It was basically what happens when a bunch of people who work on RS232 get together after, uh, after work and have too much beer. And then they say, well, I can make this machine that goes ping, talk to your machine that goes ping. And they do it with, you know, bits and bytes and baud rates and stuff. Uh, and then, uh, V3 was supposed to be a sort of retake on capturing all the semantics for that. And so they had a very abstract way of represent, representing it that you could actually kind of look like as look at as being a, another RDF. But then that wasn't getting much update because the representation was kind of god awful. It meant there was like all this clever semantics that were captured in it, but it meant that every time you wrote it down a clinical artifact that had to do with one of these things, you carried with it all of the burden of capturing all of that semantic. Uh, semantic hierarchy. And so it was just, it wasn't pleasant for, de for developers. So then Graham started the FIRE project and said, all right, well, we're going to throw away semantics, which is kind of like standing up at Davos and reading the Communist Manifesto. It's just like not a way, real good way to make himself popular. But uh, what he meant by it was he was taking all the semantic Sort of artifacts that had to be wedged into every representation of CCDA, taking that out and just saying, okay, I want a really simple tree that captures my data. So instead of having an abstract way to say what was the when when did somebody when was a particular observation made and uh, or what was the location for it and all that stuff, it was just those were just captured as properties. You know, when location, what sample did it come from, et cetera. And so that 
still carried all of the sort of the ISO 21090 uh, coded data type stuff that you were that you sort of get used to in every clinical representation. But it had a pretty simple, A, it had a simple data model that developers could get their heads around. And B, it had, uh, he worked really hard on, on um, making it pretty to look at. So people could look at the docs and get the gist of something very quickly. And so that was somebody saying, okay, well, Here's an abstract. Here's a whole bunch of abstract models that we need to agree on, and then representation we don't care about. And then they say, okay, well you can represent it in XML, JSON, and then we've added the RDF. Um, so that's really where Fire came from. Is, is this quote throwing out of semantics? So now, when we look at the intersection of the standards work and data standardization, and specifically in healthcare with data standardization like HL7 Fire, and you kind of cross that with the work that you've been doing on, on linked data and RDF and data validation, we're able to bring this together into a technology, whether it be you know, solid or verifiable credentials. But in essence, we're able to have decentralized data that we can move around that different machines understand and that can be validated so so it's interoperable. And uh, I, I think, you know, broadly, a lot of the, the work that, that you've done in linked data to make those foundational technologies work gives us the the basis of that. But also when we zero in specifically on healthcare, it's been it's been key having standards like Fire, having an RDF serialization for it. Uh, I mean, I I can still remember almost two years ago now where we were showing off how we could take data from a clinical system, uh, from multiple source clinical systems, and bring it into a solid pod and apply a bunch of existing standard data validation against it, fire data validation against it. And we had systems that said that they were fire compliant and we're bringing their data in, running it against all this existing standard validation that already existed and we're able to come back and say actually you're not and one of my favorite experiences was when we were on a uh, a call with someone who said yeah actually it's not fire compliant and i generated this visual graph with a bunch of red spots to show you exactly where you're you're breaking the rules <laughs> and you know, that was just using using the standards, using all of this base of work that existed that we're leveraging now for interoperability and decentralization. But, um, you know, it's it's all kind of immediately been applicable and made this stuff possible in, in health, which has been really exciting. Yeah, and I, I think the validation stuff came from the healthcare side. So the same way that life sciences led to the creation of Sparkle. The, the work in healthcare uh, led to the need for really a fairly serious validation language. So that led to shape expressions, aka checks. 
So I'm ever since my days in the adult uh, uh, adult web industry, I'm I'm, I'm Shex positive. So the development of shape expressions was uh, it started shape expressions started out as much simpler language, and then when we looked at Fire, I, I remember talking to Graham, and he said, "Well, does it do X?" And I said, "Well, no, it doesn't." He said, "Well, then it's not so useful for uh, for Fire." And so then a couple other people. Uh, asked me, does it do X? And I said, finally, on the third one, I said, fine, it does X. And I spent a long time making it do X, which is, uh, you know, which is basically the ability to have um, polymorphic types. And it became a, a more complicated language that became much easier for users. Excuse me, it was hard on implementers, much easier for users. And it captures what Fire uses about five or six different uh, formalisms for it captures in, in, in one, uh, which is to say fire has different ways of capturing uh, value sets and data structures and co-occurrence constraints. And you just shove all that, you can basically, Shex does all of that in one language, which was the goal. So really a, a closing question for you that um, I've asked a couple times already on this podcast and uh, maybe it's a fan favorite. Someday I'll find out. But if you're able to look 10 years into the future and you know our goal for giving people their data, breaking up silos, decentralizing it, let's just assume that it's it's all as successful as we believe it's going to be. What's the next challenge? You know, we, we've got all these problems we're solving now what's going to be the next set of problems that we're going to be faced with? I think one of the things that limits how far uh, we can go with, say, clinical decision support or uh, post-market surveillance, uh, efficacy monitoring, things that allow you to look at uh, data that you've got, uh, you've been capturing in just in the process of uh, clinical clinical pathways, just treating somebody. Uh, you know, secondary reuse of that, not only do you want to, care for that individual person, but you also want to learn from that process so you can care for other people. And one of the challenges I think there is actually just input. Like when you look at the life of an intern, they spend a lot of time clicking on things in EMRs until their fingers are numb and their eyes roll back in their head because input is so hard. Uh, And typically when people are doing doing analysis like uh you know nih says okay here's a bunch of money to go and see if there's a correlation between this and this and what we can do about it and somebody will do analysis and you know 70 percent of their budget will go to uh to coding they'll just be taking all this data that came into bazillion different forms and trying to make it something that they can that they can work with and get statistical power out of and certainly having standard structures like fire Having very standard interfaces like the Fire REST interface, which is to say basically REST, makes it so that job is much easier, but they still have to go through and basically kind of guess etiology or causality based on timing and, and things like that and what's sensible. And so as we get better at this, we're going to see more and more value in having doctors and interns and people who are already working too many hours capturing more of the context that they have in their head when they're recording stuff in an EMR. 
And that's that's hard work and I don't know how to solve it, but I suspect that making it valuable is going to get more attention on it and make it uh, make other people solve it. And I suppose, you know, that that context directly benefits the patient either, you know, one in the care that they get from that doctor, but then two, they're able to share that context either with the people around them that are helping care for them or with other services that maybe you know, separate from the clinical uh, space, but specific to like wellness or prevention and, uh, and so on. So it's really exciting. And I'm lucky enough that we get to work on, on all of this together on a, on a daily basis. Uh, I think that the world owes you a level of gratitude for the standards work that you've done for a long time it's really been great to hear a lot um, about, you know, the, your history and where that's intersected in, in a lot of ways with, with the history of the web. Uh, you're kind of interspersed amongst a bunch of key uh, standards and, and documents. So you know, we're, we're lucky when we have people that are willing to work on standards that everybody else can use. And it's been great to hear all about that from you. And Maybe you can come back again and we can dive a little bit more into some of the sordid details of your, uh, uh, your foray into the adult community. Uh, so I'll look, I'll look to see what's been unsealed. <laughs> you know, if you hadn't have told me that at the very beginning of this podcast, I would have dinged you so much for it, but I just cannot resist. So, uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time. Uh, always a pleasure speaking to you. It's a pleasure being able to work with you. And thanks for sharing all of this with us. And I just have to say, Justin has to be nice to me because he works with me. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Always good fun. Always good fun geeking with you. Likewise. Thank you, Eric. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Decentralized Web. If you enjoyed it, remember to subscribe rate us and leave a review and you can head to the description of this episode to follow us across social media to keep up with the latest decentralized data and consent-based data sharing